0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Happy Halloween. It's October the 31st, 2023. It's not proving to be a particularly happy Halloween, it seems, for the American Democratic Party. Uh, CNN headlines about divisions over Israel spill into public view lots of conflict uh, particularly around Jamal Bowman uh, for his call for Israel to stand down on Gaza splits within the party Um, Muslim voters are telling Biden that unless there's a ceasefire in Gaza they're not going to vote for him and Democrats seem increasingly nervous about Joe Biden or at least the call for an alternative. So top Democrats, whatever they are or who they are, are pleading with the party to stop looking for a Biden alternative. Uh, So where have all the Democrats gone? What's going on within the Democratic Party? One man who's been following the Democrats for many years is my guest, Rui Teixeira uh was the co-author with john judas of the emerging democratic majority uh considered a classic in its field and uh judas and and roy have a new book out it's out next week where appropriately called where have all the democrats gone the soul of the party in the age of extremes i had judas on the show last year so I invited Rui on this uh, year. Rui, uh, so where should we begin? Um, is this uh, just another week in politics when it comes to arguments over the Gaza and Israel, or does this reflect real divisions within the party?
1: Uh, I'd be inclined to say it reflects something sort of real and, and potentially important. I mean, people are always going to argue about what's going on in the Mideast since it's so hard to find a solution there, and of course, this, these latest events with the Hamas massacre um, was bound to bring some of these divisions to the fore. But it really is quite striking, I think, the way this particular division has has fallen out, because uh, as we discuss in the book, um, Democrats in the course of the 21st century, especially, have evolved sort of a sort of a, a distinctive tenor of. of what we call cultural radicalism that uh, imbricates itself in a variety of positions around race, gender, immigration, uh, climate, and a lot of other things. And I think uh, we see with this particular issue, like this strange mashup of intersectional uh, sort of analysis of racial oppression and uh, decolonization, which are quite popular on the woke left with a very uh, real uh issue in the middle east around this massacre and the response to it so you have you know you have people from all walks of life from the radical left be they climate activists or be they uh, racial justice activists or they be they whatever all saying free palestine uh israel must stand down you know palestine must be free from the river to the sea and being very cautious about what they say about uh, condemning the Hamas Massacre. And we've seen that reflected in not only the most radical activists, but in sectors of of the Democratic Party itself in terms of representatives, left-wing representatives who have made a point of trying to dissociate themselves from what the Biden administration is doing, and in fact, putting pressure on them to be tougher on Israel. And this is really freaking out a lot of sort of more normy liberal voters in the Democratic Party and activists and donors, who have kind of put up with uh, a variety of of somewhat extreme uh, positions on cultural issues over the years on on the theory that, well, you know, this is is kind of the way the wind is blowing and these people mean well, and I don't entirely agree with everything they say, but uh, I'll just go along with it for the time being because I want to be on the right side of history. Well, this has raised the question of just who is on the right side of history and who is not.
0: Yeah, I like how you put it, who's on the right side of history or who's on maybe, if not the wrong side, the left side of history. What you're arguing is increasingly becoming quite popular. We had the New York Times economist, uh, economics writer David Leonhardt on the show uh, recently. His new book, Ours Was the Shining Future, The Story of the American Dream seems to echo what you're saying. He argues that the split really took place in the 60s between what he calls the Brahmin left and a working class left. In your historical analysis, is that what happened? Did the problem begin with the new left uh, in the 60s? In some ways it did. I mean, I think there's a, a long and
1: complicated evolution of the Democratic Party away from being sort of the party of the working class, of the common man and woman, of the ordinary American, and some of it does have its roots in the '60s. We see pretty much every extreme position on uh, cultural issues that the Democrats now, a lot of Democrats push now, with the exception of climate. But certainly, you look at racial identity and gender identity politics and things like that, and sort of this uh, weird uh, and super liberal attitude toward immigration and toward crime. Um, those are all things that were were uh, put forward in the '60s and they've gone through sort of waves of, of popularity. The, the last wave of popularity was in was in the 90s, uh, political correctness, and then that died down a bit. And now it's, it's surged back in, in force in the 21st century and particularly in the teens and crested in the George Floyd summer. But the evolution of, uh, I think we can't just, I think trace this disconnect just to cultural issues that began to be raised in the 60s and began to move Democrats away from a connection to ordinary working class voters. I think we also have to look at the economics. And we talk a lot about that in the book. The first part of the book is what we call the great divide, the evolution of democratic economic policy and the country as a whole away from uh, sort of a working class orientation. A lot of working class communities felt they were being disadvantaged by the economic model. The United States seemed to be adopting, the Democrats were encouraging around free trade. deregulation and then you had the china shock in the early 2000s there was a variety of ways in which democrats themselves appeared to be complicit in the evolution of american economy away from the interests of working-class people and that really hurt them quite a bit and then it has a an interaction effect as it were with all these cultural changes that the democrats increasingly take on board uh at first in a fairly benign form in terms of well we're against discrimination we think gay people should be allowed to marry you know stuff that sort of fits fairly easily into a universalist kind of approach where a democrat should be about uplifting all people and you know there should be no discrimination and every you know there should be a lot of we should be fundamentally be a tolerant society to embracing what we see now which is more of a particularistic race essentialist promotion of a, a somewhat radical view on gender ideology calls for the abolition of borders calls for the abolition of the police and prisons stuff that is very very extreme and completely uh, lacks a mass base of any kind uh, among ordinary american voters so i we, we do make the argument it's kind of a two-pronged evolution both the great divide which starts in in the 70s and also this cultural radicalism which really crests in this century but does in fact as you were alluding to go back to the 60s and some of the issues that were raised there
0: we are speaking with Rui Teixeira, the co-author of Where Have All the Democrats Gone, a long-term... Uh, w- would you call yourself really um, a centrist, or is that an insult? I mean, a lot of people talk about the center as being a place where you you go to be run over in politics. <laughs> uh, Anne Richards had that famous quote about uh, highways and vermin in, in, in Texas. Uh, d- do you think of yourself as a centrist? Where is the soul? I mean when you have this subtitle, the soul of the party, I assume that you and John claim that soul or claim to be part of it.
1: Well, we, we certainly would urge the Democrats to return to what always worked best for them, which is being the party of the common man and woman, being somewhat, you know, basically fairly liberal on economics, concerned with the welfare of the working and middle classes, uh, and also relatively moderate on cultural issues. I mean, FDR was a great model for that. He had a very you know, quote unquote, progressive economic policy, but it was twinned to a culturally moderate, and in some ways even conservative, approach to uh, to issues, uh, social issues, and sort of the, the what it means to be an American uh, patriotism. You know, he had the the blue eagle symbol for the Works Progress Administration and the New Deal. He gave us Thanksgiving, <laughs> the holiday of Thanksgiving, and some other things. I mean, it was very patriotic approach that uh, that FDR had and the Democrats had at the time, which really fit nicely with the inclinations and views of working-class and middle-class voters.
0: Roy, Roy, you don't need me to remind you that uh, FDR's New Deal and all his power was built on uh, an unholy alliance he had with Southern Democrats, and it certainly took many years for many Black Americans to even have the right to vote uh, in a a post. FDR America so it certainly wasn't ideal was it? Of course it
1: wasn't ideal but then again anything that happens in history is not ideal and is constrained by as Marx put it the dead weight of past generations weighs like a nightmare in the brains of the living and he had to in a sense be the left wing of the possible in his particular situation and we shouldn't forget that even as he was pursuing these new deal policies and they did have some of the shortcomings you're alluding to and obviously Jim Crow was still around um, black voters started moving en masse to the Democratic Party. That was the beginning of the realignment of uh, black voters toward the Democrats. So clearly there was a lot of stuff going on in terms of what FDR did and what the New Deal stood for. That was very much congenial for black voters because they felt it benefited them. And in fact, it did. The data are pretty clear on this.
0: Yeah, an interesting piece, uh, Roy, in the you, you, you write also for the Washington Post, interesting piece about By Reese Reese, uh, earlier this year, Biden's uphill battle with working-class voters. You warn in this piece that he's losing the support of uh, African-American and Hispanic working-class voters, which is in some ways ironic, in some ways rather concerning. Do working-class people in America, do they think and vote alike? It seems to be a a key issue in, in, in the future of American politics.
1: Well, I think there are some commonalities to it, not only in terms of their economic interests, but also uh, importantly in terms of their cultural outlook and the kind of values that they hold dear and and they would like to see reflected in in American politics. Um, You know, I think one thing that made Democrats relatively quiescent uh, and and sort of relaxed (laughs) about the well-documented move of the white working class away from the Democratic Party over time, and even its uh, you know, cresting in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump, which is pretty much entirely attributable to the movement of white working-class voters, especially in the Midwest, away from the Democrats. There was a certain almost relaxed attitude because, well, what are you going to do? They're white working-class voters. Surely they're mostly animated by racism and xenophobia. What are we to do about that? I mean, this is not—it's not in our power. To what what deal did today. Hillary
0: call them? The deplorables.
1: wanted Possibly yeah. the worst gaffe that any Democratic politician has made uh, in this in this century. Um, but as they say, a gaffe is when a politician tells you what they really think. And I guess she did. So, yeah, so that was pretty terrible. And, um, you know, I thought it was quite ironic in a way, too, when you consider that Democrats had spent 40 years, you know, banging on about how neoliberalism was destroying communities and, you know, the rich were running wild and et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, we're not all in the interest of the working-class people and you know, your life is turning into a hell because of the way this country is controlled by the rich and powerful. So, okay, here are some voters that actually stood up and said in response to the way Trump was pitching things, damn right, you know, screw those elites. But that was kind of uh, removed from the equation of trying to understand why these voters might have moved to vote for Trump because Democrats were still under the illusion, we are the working-class party, surely their interests lie with us, and if they don't vote for us, it's just they're being stubborn and probably racist. So, but what happens in the in 2020, as, and, and as we still see today, and the data we're seeing from early polls, and we, we've seen it for a while now, is a movement of non-white working class voters away from the Democratic Party. Huge swings in 2020, particularly among Hispanic voters, and particularly among Hispanic working class voters. Massive movements of like 18 to 20. Uh, are they voting? Are they
0: swinging back to Trump or are they simply swinging away from the Republican Party?
1: I think they're I, I think they're swinging uh, both away from the Democrats and particularly toward Trump, who appealed to them in many particular ways. But, yeah, I think it reflects, you know, not just that they, they love Trump, but a very but a sense of disfac- dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party and what his priorities appear to be. Um, you know, Hispanics are a upwardly mobile, hardworking, patriotic, and pretty traditionalist constituency that is mostly here to. Well, That's that that a, a
0: generalization, isn't it, Roy? Well, but it's mostly true. <laughs> <But> <laughs> like most generalizations, are exceptions, I mean, no but a, it's 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 basically isn't true. Isn't that true of whites, browns, blacks, greens, blues, everybody? Well, actually, no. I
1: think there are important differences. I think, for example, if you look at white college-educated voters, which is increasingly the base of the Democratic Party and, well, they've had their greatest, in fact, it's the only demographic group that's moved actually toward the Democrats in the last 10 years or so. Um, There is a very substantial segment of these voters who are actually concerned with social issues. I mean, these have a high priority and high salience for them. They're committed to them and they think that a Democrat should really stand up for these issues and be counted, regardless of how it affects the rest of the country, whether working class voters uh, don't particularly care for them. So I think uh, the generalization that Hispanics are more conservative and traditional on these values issues and more focused on raw economic uh, concerns and upward mobility is actually a correct
0: generalization. Some people might be listening or watching this, Roy, and thinking this guy spent too much time on Fox News and he's paranoid about woke left, it's all an invention. Um, may or may may not be true. I don't suppose you spend much time on on Fox News. But to what extent, if you're right, to what Mm -hmm. extent is the response of the non-white working class to quote-unquote woke politics, to what extent is it based on reality? And what extent is it based on just the hysteria on right-wing networks like Fox News?
1: Well, I actually uh, write in particular, I've written particularly about this issue on my substack. I had a widely circulated post called the Fox News Fallacy, which basically tried to make the case that one thing that really handicaps the Democrats at this point in terms of responding to some of these issues is that's exactly their take. If voters are, you know, if Fox News is saying, you know, our conservative media source X is saying X about immigration or Y about crime or Z about the economy or this and that about gender ideology. Um, uh, Well, I mean, of course they say that, and and, and everything they say is wrong. And the job of Democrats is to deny that there's any grain of truth to it and push back on it sternly and to basically say anybody who's taken in, anybody who gives any credence to what they say or the issue that they raise is just being duped by Fox News and there's actually not, there's not a there there. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think the issue of crime is extremely important. Crime has been a problem. The borders of the United States are, in fact, rather porous at this point, and and people disapprove of that, and they want border security, and it's not all made up by Fox News. The Democratic Party has, in fact, become more woke, quote-unquote, on racial issues and on gender identity issues, of which people are very leery at this point, um, particularly working-class voters. So, no, it isn't all made up by Fox News. That is, as I say, the Fox News fallacy.
0: We are speaking with Roy Tejera, who is the co-author of an interesting new book, very controversial new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. Uh, I want to thank Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for supporting this show. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties. And then we'll be back with Roy to talk more about what a new Democratic Party should look like, what kind of leadership he would like to see, and where the soul of the party should manifest itself. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight. Of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Roy uh, Tejera, the author, a co author of Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Uh, Roy, in the first oh, half, half of the show, you mentioned immigration a couple of times. David Leonhardt is also quite outspoken on this. Have the Democrats got immigration wrong? Is that perhaps the first place where they need to rethink policy?
1: It's certainly one of the first places. We have a chapter in in our book where we discuss the immigration issue and point out just how different Democrats' attitude today is on immigration issues to what it was historically and what it was in the latter half of the 20th century. There was a famous Jordan Commission that tried to look at what the, the outcomes of the 1965 immigration reform had been and the ways in which it was is not working the way it was intended. Uh, more and more, more people were coming in than was anticipated. And then in fact, this was having an, a, a deleterious effect on the wages of low wage workers and that we needed to tighten up the system. Uh, America needs borders that are under control and an immigration system that works in such a way that it, it does not negatively affect uh, the outcome outcomes and and welfare of of lower uh, and working class uh, voters. So, um, and and in that sense, they suggested, well, we need to do more to keep undocumented immigrants out of the country. We need an E-Verify system so that we can tell who is in fact employing undocumented workers. And that pretty much got tanked by the democratic establishment as pro-immigration forces from business and from certain sectors of the party themselves, sort of push back in the other direction. And in the course of the 2000s, we see this evolution toward a very, very liberal attitude toward immigration to the point where the default democratic position seems to be, I think as Leonhardt put it, more immigration good, restricting immigration, bad and, and perhaps racist. So uh, this is kind of where we are now. And we've seen that the Biden administration's attempt to promulgate a more humane, immigration policy after Trump was in office and loosening up the border, basically, uh, has basically resulted in, you know, a, a, a tsunami of people coming across the border and being let in, gaming the asylum system, and now sort of diffusing out across the United States and overburdening cities in lots of areas of the country, including very blue cities like, like New York. So um, this is a real problem, and voters don't like it. Even Hispanic voters don't like it. I was just uh, listening to a focus group of Hispanic swing voters the other day, and it was really extraordinary the extent to which they were saying. um, In fact, I don't think people should be coming in this way. I think they're gaming the system. I think they should do it the right way. Uh, And uh, you know, Biden definitely does not have things under control. So this is something that is very meaningful uh, to a lot of working class voters uh they do what worry about about it?
0: It. You, you talk about working class voters of course the term mm-hmm. working class was invented i'm guessing in 19th century europe marx wrote about it probably more than anyone else industrial mm-hmm. working class most of this quote unquote working class are not industrial workers are they when you talk about a working class how do you define that in socio-economic terms well
1: that's a good question i mean the way we mostly define it in the book has kind of become standard in the way people talk about it in the united states which is we define broadly speaking working class voters as those who lack a four-year degree and you know then there's basically the college educated who dominate the ranks of professionals and managers so uh that's the easiest way to define it it's a pretty good uh you know first take and who the working class might be, because those are the people who occupy not just the industrial jobs, which, as you point out, are a smaller share of actual jobs, but also low-level retail and service and clerical jobs, where a lot of people now work in the service sector. So, but it leaves you know leaves out and puts in another group, the professionals and managers, uh, who who have done relatively well economically in the last forty or fifty years, and that really is very well documented. The bifurcation in economic outcomes between you know, college educated and non-college educated. So that's in a general way uh, how we uh, define it. I mean, there are other ways of doing it. You define it by an income cutoff, that's hard because of inflation, makes it more difficult to implement in- income cutoffs over time. And of course, you could also do it by occupations, but nobody collects occupational data in the US. I mean, you could loosely define it as non-professional, non-managerial workers, um, but, but basically those data are not collected in a typical survey. Um, but again, I think it matches up pretty well with the economic data we have in terms of
0: how trends have been affecting different parts of the workforce. You might have alternatively entitled your book, Where Have All the Working Class Gone? Uh, haven't they either sunk or risen? Um, we have this new precariat. We've done a number of shows recently about the profoundly precarious place of, of, of what you call a working class, what others might call an underclass in America. Mm-hmm. Um, And one always wonders why they aren't angrier. To what extent, in your analysis, have many of them, many of the angry working class, whether they're mostly white but also non white, been seduced by Trump's populism?
1: Well, because they basically don't have a lot of faith in the elites of either party, either the Democratic Party elites or the Republican Party elites. And the the thing about Trump is he basically ran against, you know, what became his own party. Right? He denounced the elites who controlled his party and the other party. He said we're selling out the country, you know, with bad trade deals. You know, they don't care about you; they look down on you. Um, you know, it was kind of a vote for me, and I'll completely remake the system because the system isn't fair and you're getting screwed. And that was congenial to a lot of people. Um, so uh, I think, you know, the populist. Tendency. We've just seen it in a lot of not only the United States, of course, but in all over Europe, UK, France, I mean Norway, wherever. I mean, there, there, there literally is not a country anymore without some sort
0: of significant populist movement, which is responding to a, right. we just did a show about on the left on the right. Yeah, we just did a show about Poland this morning. I mean, if you take out Trump's psychoses of one kind or another maybe if you take them out there's no longer a trump it sounds like you don't necessarily disagree with a lot of what he said i mean he's he's against immigration you're against immigration i'm guessing you're against uh, a liberal trade policy towards china on a policy front where do you disagree with trump why not just vote for him (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I think he doesn't. I would not say that Trump's immigration policy is, is really much of a policy other than it's to, to get tough. I think, you know, an ideal yeah, if you agree and, with that, if he could actually accomplish it, it makes you Trumpian, doesn't it? No, no, no. I mean, you can have you can tighten up border security at the same time as you actually try to reform the immigration system and develop a legal Uh, and workable uh, immigration system where, for example, you move toward an immigration system like Canada has, which favors skilled immigration. Um, So getting the immigration system under control and reforming it should be the role of the left party, I would think, not Trump. Trump basically, you know, he's not a policy guy. He just understands that this is something that a lot of the people who could vote for him really care about and he's gonna, you know, push the the pedal to the floor and really emphasize that issue and take advantage of that anger.
0: You know, I I, I take your point, but leaving aside immigration, what about on China? He did accomplish, at least in some people's mind, a great deal on China. And now it sounds as if in in some ways Biden has become Trumpian. Of course Biden has become more. Absolutely. I mean, I think that some of the
1: orientation that Trump had toward, you know, the narrow issue of border security, toward the issue of getting tough with China. I mean, these were things that made sense and not everything he did was terrible. I mean, I think by and large, he was a terrible president, and I certainly don't plan to vote for him. But, you know, (laughs) just because Trump said something, it's sort of like the Fox News fallacy. Just because Trump said something about issue X doesn't automatically make it wrong. If he says we need to be, for example, you know, tighten up border security, I'm sure he'll say this in his campaign if he's the nominee, which he probably will be. That doesn't mean he's wrong. He may not have the right idea of how to do it but he may, that may be a correct statement about what needs to be done.
0: What about your position is in any way you you, you wanna go back to the center or at least the soul of the party and what you call in your book, the age of extremes. Is, is mm-hmm. there anything radical about what you're saying or are you just going back to some sort of consensus?
1: Well, in some ways I don't think it is that radical. I mean, it's radical relative to the center of gravity of the democratic party today. But I think fundamentally, it's not that radical. What about I mean, in policy? Example,
0: so you've got immigration, you've got trade policy.
1: Well, for example, John and I are, are sympathetic to the, some of the steps that Biden has taken to uh, you know, sort of move away from the standard neoliberal model uh, of how to run an economy. And they certainly haven't been afraid to spend money. Though one could argue about what they spent it on. Um, so uh, there, there's good there to be built on. And he's certainly pro-labor, which we are. Uh, and we would urge uh, the Democrats, we think, again, I mean, we, I should stress this book is not about a guidebook for what Democrats should do. It's just tra- trying to understand how the parties, particularly the Democrats, got to the point uh, they are today and where they sort of in general need to aim to be, right? To become, again, the party of the people and the common man and woman and so on. How you do that is something we can argue about, but it doesn't necessarily require a radical. Program, but it does require perhaps changing the emphasis of democratic policy toward uh, cultural moderation and toward economic policy that's uh, sort of centered around issues of healthcare, for example. If you're going to try to move the, the country towards some sort of industrial policy, there are a lot of really legitimate questions about the extent to which this has to be focused around renewable energy and around electric vehicles. These are things that are not particularly popular with working class voters of all kinds of substantive problems with them i mean the median american working class voter basically supports and all of the above strategy which used to be a mere 10 years ago the policy of the democratic party you know fossil fuels nuclear renewable sure but above all we want energy that's cheap reliable and abundant so is that radical i don't know i think it's radical in the context of the democratic
0: party today but it's really not that quote radical quote. is, is mansion closer to the soul of the party than biden i think in some
1: ways he is in some ways he isn't i mean i think again manchin likes to be um uh, he's somewhat demonized by a lot of elements of the democratic party but in fact some of the ways he approaches some issues were correct like for example he wanted to do permitting reform in conjunction with the ira which basically got tanked by you know parts of the democratic party and also the republicans and that's a good idea we actually do need permitting reform, not just for renewables, but for nuclear, for, uh, you know, gas pipelines and so on. And so, um, you know, but we saw that that was very difficult to move forward because the way the democratic party is oriented today, now, eventually they did pass part of it as part of another bill, but it was very much watered down. And there's a very reasonable argument to be made that America is over regulated through things like NEPA and other, uh, regulations today that make it difficult to build things and do things including changing the energy system to the extent we want to do that. So I think Manchin was correct about some of that stuff. And in fact, what the Democrats need, and we've I've argued this in things I've written, they need two, three, many Joe Manchins, because those are the kind of candidates who can not only help move the Democrats toward the center in some ways that are productive, but actually could win in a lot of the states where Democrats have been losing. So, I mean, it's easy to rag on Joe Manchin, but you know, look, the (laughs) guy's relative to the state he was from, he's like pretty uh, progressive. And the same thing would be true about the kind of candidate could win in Ohio or Missouri or South Carolina or wherever, right? The Democrats need 60 senators, for example. That's a whole other discussion. How do you get 60 senators? You're not going to get it by running on the current uh, approach of the National Democratic Party. You're going to need two, three, many Joe Manchins.
0: What about the issue of Labor, you, you talk about this working class, and that for you, you've seemed to suggest in your book and in this conversation is the soul of the party. What should or could the role of unions be in, in, in recalibrating the country, organized labor? Because this is one area where your, your term, the woke left, is particularly committed and effective, isn't
1: it? Well, is it effective? I mean, I don't know. I'm not asking
0: you, you're the expert.
1: <laughs> I don't think they've been, been all that effective. I mean, the woke left is, you know, broadly speaking, the college-educated liberal left and the activist groups are much more committed to the whole vector of social issues than they are to promoting unionization. Now it's true that there have been some activists who help unionize some Starbucks and uni- unionize some think tanks and unionize some nonprofit organizations, but that's pretty weak beer compared to where the democrats and the country need to be in terms of higher unionization rates the unionization rate in the private sector today is six (laughs) percent there's a long way to go before there's a real union wave breaking over the the private economy in the united states and it's really just you know drips in the bucket when you unionize a few starbucks so if you want to if you want the party to move in a direction that is more directly promoting of unionism that's going to be a long haul, it's gonna take some changes in regulations, it's gonna take probably 60 votes in the Senate. I mean, it's gonna be hard, but if you're really committed to it, that's what you need to do. And the UAW victory as nice as it's been for the people who work in those unionized plants. It doesn't do much for the people who are non-unionized plants, and it doesn't do much for the 92% of the workforce that is not in manufacturing.
0: You've mentioned Joe Biden a number of times Mm -hmm. it's it's hard to make sense of him in terms of your narrative is he the problem or the solution or both is he where the soul still is or is he the one who's been who's um who has been pushed by people who have appropriated at least in your mind the soul of the party towards the left
1: well i think he's both i think he instantiates in his own way some of the uh Ancestral approach of the Democratic Party. I think he's more comfortable with working class voters and working class values. He is, I think, inclined by nature toward that direction, and that's why, in a sense, he became president because he was able to present himself as someone who was more of a normie candidate, who was going to move the country away from Trump and what he stood for, and just going to, you know, sort of do good for normal people, get the economy back to normal, get the COVID thing under control. Everything was going to be well normal, which is what a lot of working class voters want. Um, But I think in the process of staffing up his administration and how he ran his campaign, he's become committed to a wide variety of issues, and in fact, not that congenial to working class voters. So, you know, I think when, uh, you know, there are some Democrats who put their, their paw print on the party, right, there were FDR Democrats, some extent, there were Clinton Democrats, even Obama Democrats, but I think to some extent Biden is more the creature of his party than the party is sort of something that, that he's shaped. And I think that, uh, once he passes from the scene, it'll be interesting to see exactly how the debates in the democratic party, uh, turn out. Cause I don't think there's like this massive tranche of Biden quote unquote Democrats out there who are going to move the party in a direction that's distinctive to his vision. So, uh. You know, I'm sympathetic to Biden. I think he's done some good things, but I think he is basically very responsive to what he feels are the currents, you know, washing over the Democratic Party and, and is really loath to make waves and push it in a different direction on, on issues where the progressive left or the party, for example, feels feels quite
0: differently. That sounds rather lukewarm. Uh, do you think that there, we should, we, the Democrats, should be looking for a Biden alternative? Can he win in 24?
1: Well, A, yes, he can win, he can also lose too. But B, I think that realistically, he's the best available candidate for the Democrats. And if they tried to throw him over the side, the internecine warfare, as the, we, we, as the Democrats sought to queue up another candidate would be um, actually pretty bad and would uh, you know reduce the probability that Democrats could be elected. Uh, we'll see, I mean, that's my view. I mean, we can't uh, run a controlled experiments on this, but I think Biden, uh is probably the best they got so i think they're hoping he's uh, <laughs> continues
0: to be mobile well, well, 2024. I mean, finally uh this is an interesting conversation a very important conversation really. Right? why aren't there young leaders uh david leonhardt uh believes that uh, everyone since rfk has failed the working class and rfk was the last hope for progressive populism why aren't there more young dynamic progressive populists
1: well, that's, you know, that's a huge question. And I think that But it's the, the core question Party... for
0: you, because politics is about leadership, isn't it, especially in America?
1: Well, again, we're not, we're not trying to provide the uh, recipe book for how the Democrats can can come back, we're simply arguing that's sort of where they need to go. And I would probably we would probably generally agree with Leonhardt that the Democratic leadership over time has failed uh, to provide that leadership and that the current crop on offer, you know, we'll see what happens. But I mean there are some grounds for for pessimism. I think parties basically change because you know the terrain changes, the market sends signals, uh, they realize you can't go on in the current way. You have to be different. I mean, where did Bill Clinton and DLC come from? That was a reform but are I mean, you
0: just calling and, and the more I talk to you, we've done some shows on Clinton, mostly mm-hmm. critical. I mean the more I talk to you it sounds like we're back where we were in the 90s and that you're just calling for another bill clinton who of course disappointed everybody even himself perhaps well
1: i mean the 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 bill clinton of 1992 who ran as a a populist in addition to someone who wanted to move the democrats toward the center and cultural issues actually a pretty good model he just didn't follow through on it he was basically caught up in the sort of the soft neoliberalism, I think, that was very characteristic of most left parties at the time, and certainly was characteristic of Clinton and how he pursued economics during his administration with the trade deals and the dereg of finance and so on, um, but that doesn't mean there isn't an opening in the future for someone who realizes Democrats have to return to being the party of the working class, and to do that, you not only need to sort of turn down the volume on some of these cultural issues, but you have to actually figure out a way to promote economic policies that will actually be to the benefit of most working and middle-class people in the country, and that don't reflect, you know, can't be interpreted and perhaps reflect a sort of crusade to uh, remake the country around green energy, for example. So um, I think it can be done, but I don't think it means returning to, uh, you know, the Clinton model as it sort of was eventually implemented was a combination of I would say cultural moderation and soft neoliberal economics, that's not what we're calling for.